RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Rest better and get up to $200 off mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your internet privacy and get an extra three months free on a one-year package by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. The first ships in the collection, including the Orville itself, are available now at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase with free shipping. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 383, Empoch Noor. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. On every episode of Mission Log, we risk it all to bring you the morals, meanings, and messages that are hidden away in every episode of Star Trek. This week, Booby Trap, the one where the Deep Space Nine crew go to an abandoned Cardassian space station and encounter a bunch of booby traps. Wait, 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 wait. That's not what this That's not what this episode's called. What? Wait a second, wait. Um Come I'm on. pretty sure this episode's called Empire. Wait, is it Empak Nor? Empak Noir? Nor. Empak Nor. Uh, which is the name of the station. You know, like Terak Nor was the name of Deep Space Nine? No, no, no. I'm I'm pretty sure it's called Booby Trap. Uh because as we all know, when you have an episode where the characters say Booby Trap 147 times, then they are obligated to name it Booby Trap. Be honest. You just wanted to say booby trap again. Yes, yes, I did. And uh, for that booby trap. Well, here's what's not a booby trap. This is how you can get in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Your reviews at Apple Podcasts help other people find the show, and we do appreciate it. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323 323- 522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Hey, we'll do the thing with the stuff and the story in a minute. But first, a quick word from our friends at Eagle Moss and the Orville Starships Collection. All right, this has nothing to do with being booby traps either. Even though that we're talking about the Orville ships on a Star Trek show. Yeah, it, it, which you would trap. think would be like a booby trap. But no, no, no booby traps here. Not even a booby trap for your wallet, because <laughs> these ships are amazing. They're developed in partnership based on Seth MacFarlane's hit science fiction comedy drama, and the ships of the brand new The Orville Ships Collection are available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. Now, the first ships in the collection are the Planetary Union ship, the USS Orville, the ECV-197, and its shuttle, the ECV-1971. They are available right now directly from the Eagle Moss shop for only $29.95 each, with free shipping. There's even an oversized XL edition of the Orville, 
available for only $74.95. No matter what you order, use code Mission10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. Hey, you know what's been fun lately is I've seen people online, friends of ours who are uh, maybe you know professionally part of the Star Trek world or have a foot in the Star Trek world and the Orville world. And they're getting mm-hmm. these ships too, and they're super excited about them. So uh, that that's been awesome to see that see them out in the wild and uh, people that we know going, "Ooh, look what I got!" And they're excited because, well, they're all awesome. They're of course based on careful study of those models created for use in the series, highly detailed ships, and each one is made out of diecast metal and high quality ABS materials and hand painted for stunning accuracy. Each ship comes with a display base, of course, plus a collector's magazine filled with concept art, interviews, and behind-the-scenes details of the Orville TV series. Now, you just have the three at first here, but additional ships are slated to join the collection soon. But but come on, you, you know that these three, those are the ones you want to get right now while you can. I almost want them to do an XL version of the shuttlecraft because it's so It's gorgeous. so, yes. I, I, every time I see it, I'm thinking like, oh, this is a little bit of a throwback, like a little 2001, a little next gen, like it's a little of everything together, but so cleanly designed. I love it. They're absolutely gorgeous ships. And if you want to check them out, full details, including comprehensive views of each ship and ordering information can be found at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. And now, this is not a booby trap either. <laughs> Unless you consider amazing trivia a booby trap, then it is a booby trap. Here's John Champion with this week's booby trap. All right, here we go. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll do trivia for Impact Noor, and then we'll come back to booby trap. So this story okay. is by Brian Fuller, and we've only mentioned Brian here once before. That was on the first DS9 episode that he wrote, which was The Darkness and the Light, for which he got a story credit, just like here. And as is often the case, the original story changed quite a bit before it went before the cameras. In the original, the focus of our story with Garrick was actually Worf, and they would have been out and happened to discover a derelict Cardassian ship. The general idea was there, but it was Ira Stephen Bear who assigned the story to Hans Beimler, who gets the teleplay credit. And even then, Ira wasn't terribly happy with Hans's first attempt since it was missing so much of the character moment's uh, potential with O'Brien and Garrick. Uh, so he went back for another round that was much better received, especially by the actors who felt that the original telling was just devoid of anything that made it unique to their backgrounds or character growth. Mike Vijar directed this episode, and it's appropriate that as his second DS9 outing, he would be directing a Brian Fuller story since he also directed The Darkness and the Light. We have a few more of his episodes to go here on DS9, and then, like Brian, he will spend a significant amount of time on Voyager. Let's talk about our guest stars. Well, we get to spend some quality time with longtime recurring characters Garrick and Nog. So welcome back to Andrew Robinson and Aaron Eisenberg. And we also get to spend some time, finally, with those fan-favorite, well-developed secondary characters. You know, you know, the ones we all loved. Back for more action, just like always. There's Amaro and Pachetti, Bokta and Stoltzoff. I mean, come on, who who doesn't love the crazy antics when Bokta and Pachetti are on the team, right? So, 
Jeffrey King plays Amaro, and he had a recurring role on Beverly Hills 90210, and he was also in the feature film Mars Attacks, so a heartfelt ack, 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 to him. Pachetti is played by Tom Hodges, who has the distinction of being a recurring character on Valerie back when it starred Valerie Harper, and again when it was recast with Sandy Duncan and renamed The Hogan Family. Since the 90s, he has continued acting on TV and features and also worked as a producer and director. Arbolian Bokta is played by Andy Miller, an actor who works all the time either in front of the camera or frequently as a voice performer. In fact, his debut here on DS9 leads to a few gigs as voices in Star Trek video games and then a return to TV for a guest role on Voyager. You can also catch him in movies like Apollo 13 or Frost Nixon, in which he plays real-life Nixon aide Frank Gannon. Finally, Marjean Holden appears as Stoltzoff. Marjean got her start on stage at a very young age, and by the time her on-camera career was picking up in the early 90s, she was simultaneously working as a stunt performer in feature films as well. She appeared in the Babylon 5 TV movie, A Call to Arms, and the B5 spinoff series, Crusade, as well as the TV version of Beastmaster, and she was featured in the Mortal Kombat movie, Annihilation. When you roll up to a whole space station at a Dutch angle, it's a sure sign that a good time will be had by all. I'm sure everything is okay. It's cool. Prologue. Kira, Dax, and Worf enter a very, very empty Quark's bar. And as Quark himself tries to explain where all of his customers went, they all suddenly understand why the restaurant is so empty. Or more to the point, hear why. Cadet Nog and Chief O'Brien are doing some major repair work to an adjacent plasma conduit manifold, made from Cardassian technology, which is impossible to replicate for replacement parts. However, never to be deterred from a trivial engineering setback, the chief suggests to salvage the parts they need from Empok Nor, a former Cardassian station similar in design to Deep Space Nine, since both were built by the Cardassians. And like Terak Nor, Empok Nor would have been booby-trapped after its Cardassian masters evacuated the station. Naturally, having a highly trained Cardassian intelligent agent on the mission would increase its chances of success. Good thing Mr. Garrick is available. And as he joins the chief, along with the four lower decks crewmen on the runabout, Engineers Pachetti and Bogta, and security detail Stoslov and Amaro, Cadet Nog arrives shortly after and rounds out the away team. Next stop, Empok Nor. Act 1. As the runabout speeds towards Empok Nor, Garrett chastises Nog's far too defensive posturing during a friendly round of Kutra, a traditional Cardassian strategy game. Garrick explains that Kutra is about boldness while lamenting to play a real tactical strategist, someone daring with boldness, and with the legacy of being the hero of Setlik III. Yet no matter how much Garrick baits O'Brien into a game of Kotra, the chief shines on any mention of his involvement in the Federation-Cardassian War, especially what he did at Setlik III. Upon arriving at Empak Nor, Garrick's Cardassian physiology and expert operative training allow him to slip past the station's defenses as he easily disarms the airlock booby trap and restores emergency power. 
Chief O'Brien snaps very quick and very precise orders to his salvage team and sends them on their way to procure the must-have materials needed to fix Deep Space Nine. However, unbeknownst to everyone on the away team, several cryogenic-type tubes activated when the emergency power was restored. Scanning the station for supplies, Garrick recoils after his hand slips on a handrail covered in some type of biogenic substance. This clue leads him and Bokta to the infirmary, where they discover that three Cardassian soldiers of the 3rd Battalion of the First Order were confined to stasis tubes. Two of those three tubes were empty, meaning that there are two Cardassian killing machines loose on the station. As Garrett contacts O'Brien to explain what he's discovered, Nog heads back to the runabout to retrieve a forgotten tool, only to stare through a porthole in shock as he watches the runabout float adrift from the airlock and explode. Act 2. Regooping in the infirmary, Chief O'Brien, Garrick, Nog, and the Lower Decks team realize that they are in grave danger from two Cardassian soldiers from a regiment whose motto literally means death to all. It is also possible that they've been exposed to mind-altering drugs that have heightened their xenophobic paranoia and killing efficiencies. Making matters worse, a dampening field has been activated which nullifies the away team's comm equipment. Making worse matters even worse... The subspace receiver array on this station was torn out during the previous Cardassian exodus. With no runabout to escape and no communications relay to call Deep Space Nine for help, what's left? Smoke signals? Hey, good idea. But not smoke signals, rather signal pulses. Now armed with a plan, the chief sends his teams on their various assignments to tech the tech, and if successful, they will not only find a way to communicate with Deep Space Nine, but get off the station before the Cardassians find them. Garrick rubs his hands in a strangely aggressive manner as he and the chief debate the finer points of their predicament while Nog sweeps the perimeter as one of the Cardassian soldiers lurks in the shadows. Meanwhile, Stolzov and Pachetti have reached the microfusion generator room, but are unnerved by the arrival of an empty turbo lift and strange sounds coming from above. As soon as they split up to investigate the disturbances, they are both killed with expert efficiency by the Cardassians, a fact that the chief soon realizes when he appears on the scene. Act 3. Knowing that they are running out of time, the chief refocuses the remaining members of his salvage team to get their smoke signal plan back online. However, Bogta is understandably shaken at the loss of his fellow lower deckers and doesn't want to go at it alone. An increasingly twitchy Garrick also has plans of his own to hunt down and kill their enemies first. But before he leaves, Garrick takes one last parting shot at O'Brien, wondering if the hero of Setlake 3 wants to kill a few more Cardies, for old time's sake. Back in the infirmary, Garrick is unable to access the computer as he senses the presence of someone lurking in the shadows. It is one of the Cardassian soldiers who has outflanked Garrick by descending from the spiral staircase outside the infirmary doors. However... As one who exhausts all possible options to survive, Garrick emerges from the damaged stasis chamber and dispatches his assassin with an aftertaste of satisfaction. Upon returning to Chief O'Brien and Nog, Garrick informs them that he analyzed the tissue sample of the soldier he killed and discovered a massive amount of psychotropic drugs in his system, which would only increase the natural xenophobic hostility in any Cardassian, let alone a trained and motivated soldier. And before Garrick leaves to hunt down the other soldier, Chief O'Brien looks him over closely and can't help but see someone else's face on Garrick, one that is not a tailor. 
As Bogta and Amaro are making progress with their repairs, the second Cardassian soldier is circling in and around them, through the shadows, waiting for the kill. As soon as Amaro turned away to find Bogta a coil spanner, the Cardassian appeared with blinding speed and crushed Bogta's throat with his boot heel. And before Amaro could react, Garrick shot the soldier in the back, saving Amaro, only finally to succumb to his own exposure to the psychotropic drugs and plunged the fork end of a flux coupler, not a coil spanner, into Amaro's chest. Act 4. As soon as the chief finishes his repairs, he cycles through his comm badge trying to hail either Bogta or Amaro, but with no success. Packing up their gear, the chief and Nog race to find their comrades, only to discover Bogta's body sprawled on the floor next to Amaro, who is leaning against a bulkhead and bleeding out. But right before he dies, through gritted teeth, Amaro tells the chief it was Garrick who stabbed him. Fear sets in, and Nog can't grasp why Garrick has turned against them. But the chief suddenly realizes that Garrick must also have been exposed to the psychotropic drug that affected the other two Cardassian soldiers. He suspected something was wrong with Garrick before, but was so focused on escaping, he never took the fight to the real enemy. And the chief admits to Nog that if killing Garrick is what it will take to get off the station, then that's what has to be done. Suddenly, Garrick hails the chief and Nog and lets them both know that he's in the former station commander's office, staring at a coacher board. Reveling in the irony of the current situation, as they are finally playing the game that Garrick was baiting the chief into playing when back on the runabout. But at this time, the stakes are real, with lives in the balance, and Garrick plays to win, as he contains the chief in the commander's office with a force field, and takes Nog hostage to prepare for his final endgame against the hero of Setlik Three. Act 5. Shortly after Garrick leaves, the force field that trapped the chief in the commander's office deactivated itself. O'Brien escapes and tries to reason with Garrick, telling him that the psychotropic drug is affecting him. But Garrick is far too under the influence and wants to see how far the hero of Sedlik III will go to win, taunting the chief all the while about how much he is a killer, no matter what uniform he wears. O'Brien agrees to meet with Garrick and to have it out, once and for all. No weapons, just brutal hand-to-hand combat to the end. As the chief maneuvers through the promenade for his showdown with Garrick, he stumbles upon the hanged remains of his lower deckers along the way. When O'Brien and Garrick finally lay down their arms and square off fist to fist, it is Garrick who has the upper hand in unarmed combat, taunting the chief all the while, saying he's a soldier no longer, to which the chief replies, You're right, I'm an engineer, as his makeshift tricorder phaser bomb explodes, rendering Garrick unconscious and ending their game. Back on Deep Space Nine, Garrick is lying on a medical bed in sickbay, fully purged and cured of the drug. The chief and Julian observe his condition from a distance, and the chief still can't believe that Garrick hid such a darkness inside of him, which the drug was able to coax from deep within. As the chief and Garrick have one final conversation about what transpired on Empok Nor, they exchange a great many words aloud, but it is the silence of what is unsaid and unspoken between them that is truly deafening. The end. Look, and I I think what is becoming a time-honored tradition here on Mission Log, uh, new band names abound this week, Tricorder Phaser Bomb. Um, oh, and, I'd, I'd, lo- I'd love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even Look, even if that's not a uh, a band name, I'm just going to go ahead and offer it up like to uh, you know the folks and. Warp 11 or a Stovacore, if you need a new album title, uh, Tricorder Phaser Bomb 
it's, you know, could be up for grabs. Might be a licensing deal, but yeah, we could figure it out. I heard they were the bomb. <laughs> That's what I heard. See? See, they were. Yeah. They were the bomb. Yeah. They were. And now they are shrapnel in Garrick's chest. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> As some bombs become. All right. Yeah. Now, I like a good old-fashioned suspense story. And I like, I like the noir on noir. Mm-hmm. That's why I keep getting those things mixed up. I, because they're, it's, it's very how, dark. It's noir. You know, it's yes. Noir. How can yeah. you not? I mean, come on. Yeah. I get tripped up over these words anyway. But I do like, like those isolationist stories, like The Thing both versions of it right yeah yeah totally yeah where you just throw in a little bit of kind of like you know sci-fi zombieism you know like event horizon or you know mm-hmm. jason in space yeah you know yeah you, however you want to do it yeah you're just taking your characters you're really narrowing down uh building the tension you know taking everything else away from them no chance of escape you know i, I love that early on you know they blow up the runabout just you know so immediately it's like okay exactly yeah no escape yeah yeah love that yeah. Mm-hmm. hey I, I wonder speaking of uh early on here did i did I detect a little jealousy maybe from Garrick about all the time that uh, O'Brien spends with Bashir in the Hollow Suite? Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I think. There was a lot of digging going on. Yeah. Like back and forth. There was. There was. But we had this conversation, uh, John. I think it was when, well, let's see. Uh, let's see. Roll the wheel of excuses and Keiko was gone for <laughs> some reason. Yes. Right? So... I think this time she was probably like studying a flower and then Miles had to clean up his his whole apartment, his whole quarters yeah. in Deep Space Nine because it was covered with prop stuff like leather jackets and gaming stuff. And, right. Right? Yeah. But there there is something to be said about, you know, how serious these guys kind of take their holodeck fantasies, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, well, look, what else are they going to do? Keiko's gone for like a year and a half at a time. And O'Brien's not taking care of that baby. So <laughs> what else? What else is he going to do? There's only so many replicators he can fix, right? So right. yeah. Oh my gosh, that's the baby in the engineering pit that just came to mind. That's so funny. You know what, though? Hey, maybe Alexander saying- can take care of the baby sometime. Okay. Oh, see, thank you for drawing the fire for me this week. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have been hard on Al- poor Alexander. Yes. He hasn't even a chance to speak up and defend himself and never will. Right. Oh, one <laughs> worse concerned. So one thing I wanted to do when you were reading the four crewmen mm-hmm. that always return for extra adventures, oh. I always wanted to yell out lower decks, lower yes! decks, lower decks, yes. lower decks, right? Yes. Because they were such a lower decks crew. Totally. Right? Totally. And I, I do, look, I do appreciate the idea that they went to the trouble to give them some individual personalities, and I, but you just know you're never going to see them again. And it, it does certainly, like, now lower decks has become a thing. And I don't just mean the show lower decks, but I mean the whole idea that you've got, uh, you had a TNG episode lower decks. So, like, we've decided mm-hmm. that we can focus on this. So that's right. it's kind of nice, but you just you know you're never going to see them again. Although a couple of times, yeah. you know they they started to build up some characters who I wanted to see more of, like Munez, but then right we just didn't anymore because that's not the way that was going to go. Oh, and, and I do respect that there is somebody on that lower decks team who sees this as an opportunity to go hunting for collectibles. <laughs> so I can certainly identify with that. More power to them. 
So that that's, that kind of weirded me out a little bit. And maybe it's yeah. because, you know, they weren't bounty hunters because they're Starfleet officers. Mm-hmm. So is that a thing? Can they do that in Starfleet? Like, bring back relics? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it. You know, they're going to a presumably abandoned place that nobody so. cares about. And, it, you know, they, they didn't even... The first time it was brought up, we certainly didn't know that there were a couple of uh, Cardassian soldiers in uh, cryo there. Now, right. a little bit weird to take the one off a corpse. I would probably just not reach my hand in there. But the idea of, hey, we're going to this abandoned place. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I kind of get it. <laughs> well, you got to expose Garrick to the biogenic substance somehow. Exactly. You got to contrive right. that little bit of contrivance exactly. right away and then shove them all the way in a tube later on <laughs> of the same stuff mm-hmm. um, so one thing i thought was a little weird and it's just it's dialogue that kind of just rubs me the wrong way but when the dampening field was uh, activated i think it was um one of the one of the lower deckers started smacking their tricorder mm-hmm. like tapping on it really hard it's like this thing doesn't work. Yeah. This thing doesn't work. <laughs> You're like, would it, would it, would it hurt any of the writers to say like, you know, my tricorder doesn't work. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the thing like, why is everything that we can't identify always called the a thing? thing? <laughs> right. Yes. But they know what it is. Yes. You know, exactly. That was weird. There was a, a weird kind of production thing. And, and look, and I get it. I totally get it from a production standpoint. I get why visually we need to make a distinction between Deep Space Nine and Empak Nor, like keeping the lights off. Like it's cool to see this station out there without all the lights and the, the life of Deep Space Nine on it. However, I, I do want to point out that every time we see an exterior shot, it's at a really dramatic angle, like like mm-hmm. it's listing in space, even in their approach in the runabout. And um, guys, it, it, it's in space. There, there's no up or down. They're just even if they approached it from completely, you know, backwards, upside down, doesn't matter. You're just gonna flip the runabout around to be in the same alignment <laughs> with Impact Nor. And once they get on board, anyway. There is gravity there, artificial gravity, so they're right side up. Yet every time you go to the outside, it's just like to drive it home that it's impact nor. Let's flip the thing at a forty-five degree angle. It's like it, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I think that's like in a in a branded show, like there are branded establishing shots, right? So yeah, totally. You know, uh, there's that really just nice kind of like sweeping vista left to right on the screen left to right yep. uh, shot of Deep Space Nine. It's like, oh, it must be Deep Space Nine. It could be any, literally, any Cardassian station oh, of truly. the same architecture, yeah. right? Yeah. But if, it's only, but if it's shot that way, at that angle, with that pan speed, that's Deep Space then Nine. Then we know, right. Then we know, yeah, yeah. I liked the uh, scene where where Combs, his expression just kind of snaps into this this almost cold... Uh, almost emotionless expression went, and then he jumps out of his seat and he looks right at Garrett. He goes, "That's not the face of a tailor." Like he knew something was wrong. Yeah, right, right. It yeah. was a very dramatic physical acting moment, and I just thought that it was uh, it was something that I wanted to make note of because it it seemed out of place, but it sold kind of like oh, like the chief's like oh, we're in trouble. I just can't 
let people, I can't let Garrick know how much trouble we know we're in. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That... But he, that was just really, really nice. And I also like that Garrick was able to play to his strengths or Andrew Robinson was allowed to play to Garrick's strengths as being outwardly cold and outwardly calculating as opposed to tiptoeing around who he was. He was able to really embrace who Garrick was. Oh, yeah. I think that was the scary thing. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I tell you what, we'll save that thought. We'll come back to it in the next act because uh, I, I do have some questions oh. about who Garrick really is. And I, I do have to say, you know, I, I do love a good bottle show. It was interesting to read about the redress of the Deep Space Nine sets in uh, Terry Erdman's book, uh, talking about how. You know, the first goal was just to get rid of all the stuff. Like, you don't want to see this as a filled, living place. So they got rid of all the stuff, and obviously you kill most of the lights. But they also changed all the carpets. So they wanted it to have a very different look, and that was just a good way to do that. Um, so it's cool to see a redress of an existing set and then pretend like it's somewhere else. You know, I, I love this sort of, you know, trick of TV where you can do a show with your most of your main actors, the other actors, the the guests, well, they're going to be gone pretty soon. And then you're using your existing spaces. You don't have much out of your the rest of your starring cast this week. I would say, you know, for things like this, see also the Tholian Web, uh, Doomsday mm-hmm. Machine, where you redress the Enterprise sets and say, no, this is a whole other ship. So I love this sure. kind of time-honored tradition of, uh, of doing that. Oh, Mega Glory, too, because they had to redress it for the Exeter. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. things of that nature. Yeah, Totally, sure. totally. And and call out here for a favorite prop, which we won't see on DS9 again, that phaser rifle. Those were uh, fresh off of First Contact, I believe. So Okay. Yeah. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to talk about that because mm-hmm. Mary Jean Holden's character, like uh, Stolzoff, mm-hmm. she has the old phaser rifle, easily mm-hmm. seen. And then all of a sudden, like, Nog is, yep. like, you know, he's strapped with that really nice yeah. streamlined phaser rifle from uh, First Contact. And where did he get that? Where, where, <laughs> just yeah, That's it. He goes off to the Academy for a year, and he comes back with, like, this latest deadly tech. <laughs> you know? And you would think, like, the Lower Deckers would be like, okay, where'd you get that? Yeah, yeah right? right. We got stuck with this stuff. You know, you got that advanced Mark 9, whatever, right. whatever, rifle, right? Right. That would have been funny if, like, Worf gave it to him. Yeah. Like, this is for you. <laughs> and, Kill and, something with honor. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> I did want to see one scene cut in there, and, I, and I, I thought it was awkward that it wasn't somehow the way that it ended the uh, Act 4. And that, that was the scene where we should have had a close-up of O'Brien and how much hate that he did have in his expression when Garrick was saying, you want to kill Cardassians, when he said that the chief wants to kill Cardassians, he didn't get that payoff close-up shot. That would have explained a lot. Right. Right. Right? Yeah. And because Garrick made such a huge part of his, uh, his monologuing, saying that, you know, I know you. Doesn't matter what uniform you put on. You're a stone-cold killer. You want to kill Cardassians. You can't wait to wrap your hands around my throat or however he said that. Right. I saw it in your eyes. We didn't. Right. If this substance boosts a Cardassian's natural tendencies, the violence is the least of our worries. They'll kill us with monologuing. 
We'll get back on board in Pucknor in just a moment. But first, a word from this week's sponsors. Hey, Norman, have you ever shopped for a mattress before? Many times. Yeah, it, it's terrible. <laughs> I don't know about your... It yeah, is. Uh, my last experience of actually shopping in person for a mattress, which was years and years ago, was awful. Um, I hated going into the stores. I hated getting the runaround. I hated not knowing what I was in for. It it was it was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, sometimes shopping for a mattress, trying to find the most relaxing thing for your life is like the most stressful thing. Yeah. That's happening right then and there. Yeah, 100%. And that's why I was so glad to uh, try out Helix Mattress because they took all of that nightmare away and uh, I've been able to sleep on it. And I'll just, you know, kind of jump to the end here and say I've really enjoyed sleeping on a Helix Mattress. No question about that. Uh, But the first part of it that was so great for me was just taking all the pain away from actually figuring out what mattress I wanted to get. So what they do is you go to their website, uh, helixsleep.com slash mission log for us, and there's a quiz. It takes you a couple of minutes, and you put in information about like your body type, height, weight, how you sleep, what your preferences are. You put in all the details, the size of the bed you want. Is it just for you? Or are you sharing your bed with somebody? You put in all those details, and then it makes a custom recommendation for you. So Mm. everybody's unique. Helix knows that. So that's why they have many different mattresses to choose from. So they have soft, medium, firm um, mattresses that are good for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Um, There's really everything. There's mattresses for plus size folks. Anything you could want, they're there. So I took the quiz. Uh, I was matched with a Twilight, which is like a firmer mattress. And um, I I didn't realize this until I really thought about it, but I tend to sleep on my side. I also tend to move around a lot. There's just, you know, stuff you got to do when you're asleep. So I just, apparently I move around a lot. So I'm a stomach sleeper myself. Okay, well, see, you could go take the quiz and you they would recommend one for that too. So it's so great to have something that is much more customize and just an upgrade over what you're used to if you've had that mattress for you know 10 20 years and it's starting to wear down a bit probably time to get rid of it and not go through the rigmarole of having to go to a mattress store stop doing that this is much much better so if you're looking for a mattress you take the quiz you order the one that you're matched to the mattress just shows up right to your door ship for free you don't have to go to the mattress store Look, it's awesome. You don't have to take my word for it. Uh, They were rated number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. So go check them out. So just go to helixsleep.com slash mission log. Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty to get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it but you will. So Helix is offering up to $200 off mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. 
Hey, Norman, one other thing to talk about this week. Tons of VPN providers out there. Uh, I'm sure that most of our listeners have heard of a lot of them. And I'm sure listening to our show, you have heard about ExpressVPN before. You and I both, we we personally recommend the products that we advertise. We turn down a lot of uh, products that are brought to us. And we both have been using ExpressVPN Truly, for me, the best VPN on the market, the best one that I can use, and there are many reasons why. Well, a lot of these reasons uh, we've talked about and we both agree with because we both use the product and we use the product because we have confidence in it. And ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. A lot of really cheap VPNs make money off of selling your data to ad companies. You don't want that to happen. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. So you can take comfort in that. The second is speed. What I love about ExpressVPN is as soon as I turn on any of my devices, I can see very clearly that it is connected. I can see it either through their app or through their web-based programs. So I always love it being reassured that quickly that they are connected and protecting my data. And you know, you don't want your, your connection to be sluggish when it comes to these VPNs. So, I mean, we've been using ExpressVPN for the, the sheer fact that it keeps your internet speeds incredibly, incredibly fast. Warp speed fast, <laughs> if I may use that vernacular. You can. You, you can. Even you're, when you're I allowed. connect. Yeah. Well, and on this show, I think it's yeah. relative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so even when I connect to servers, like, you know, wherever I go, I can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag. And the last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from the other VPNs is how easy it is to use. Like I just said before, you don't have to input your program or anything. You just fire up the app, click one button to connect. It's so easy, even your grandparents can use it. Yes. And look, it's not just us. You don't have to take our word for it entirely. Wired, The Verge, CNET, so many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So look, protect yourself with the VPN that we both use and trust. Use our link, expressvpn.com slash missionlog today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Visit expressvpn.com slash missionlog to learn more. All right, here we go. I heavy morals, meanings, messages, uh, just the, the ethical dilemmas, the, the emotional core of this. Uh, uh, come on. <laughs> uh, what we have here is a, like a haunted house episode, a haunted house in space. Yeah. And, and I've, I've used that term before, uh, honestly, in very glowing ways about like Star Trek First Contact. Uh, it, there, there's a lot going on there, but I think the fun of it is that it's a haunted house movie in space. And, um, you know, you you up the fear a bit by turning one of our beloved Cardassians into a super soldier, as it happens, you know. Uh, so maybe we're going to struggle a little bit to find a real world angle that's that's super deep and meaningful. But there was a thought that I had that I'm going to tackle and just sort of play with a little bit with you. And let's go on this whole thing about Garrick being uh, uh, altered with this super soldier serum that the Cardassians (laughs) been playing with, right? Captain Cardassia. Captain Cardassia, right? I can't get that image out of my head. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, But that's a question in my mind about how 
impaired you are when you're on substances like, say, in a real world analogy, alcohol or drugs. So one mm. school of thought tells us that those can make you act out in ways that are completely out of character. And another school of thought might tell us that what we're actually seeing is really that person, but it's just their id coming out. Like it's the the subconscious, the kind of deep stuff that they would normally repress and the, the alcohol or drugs or whatever other influence is allowing that to come out, you know? I don't think those are mutually exclusive ideas, though. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, because one can one can affect the other, or they can be independent thoughts. If you go all the way back to the enemy within, mm-hmm. you know there there was you could use the uh, the transporter effect that separated Kirk into his two the parts of his ego as something like a mind altering substance, which allowed him to access certain parts of who he is without shame or without repercussions or responsibility. Yeah. To what happened so that's what happens when i'm gonna get to this later on because I, I don't want to steal like my mmm <laughs> but i do want to address what you said here because i think it's very yeah. significant that when something happens when somebody either because of uh because of substance abuse problems or because of any type of vice induced issues when they use that and they use it as the excuse uh, after they have done something that is abusive or violent or criminal, they almost use that also as a way to plead that type of temporary insanity defense right. when something badly happens. Right. And I think that that's where they were trying to get to in a way at the end where the chief and Garrick had that that unspoken understanding between mm-hmm. them where the chief was like, yeah, you did kill four of my people, yeah. but you were under the influence of something. So I don't really know where I am at with this right now emotionally. I don't think he's settled. Yeah. And, and you know? how can you be? See, this is why I'm always suspicious. He even bristle a bit when whether it's somebody you know who has acted poorly or you see it in the public sphere a lot you know somebody gets caught doing something awful and then the answer is you know oh that wasn't me i'm not really like that you know whether it's a statement they made or or an action that they took as if their minds were suddenly taken over by some force they couldn't control and you know really there's there's not another force, but maybe we tell ourselves that because we're embarrassed or we truly can't deal with the fact that we all have capacity for terrible behavior. You know, our instinct then is to blame that behavior on something else. But then that's kind of the myth that we tell ourselves is that we, we, uh, we would rather absolve somebody of a certain level of responsibility by saying like, oh, but in that moment, they weren't acting like themselves. In that moment, this other thing took over and they really couldn't, they were powerless to not do that incredibly stupid thing that they did. I have to clarify something though before I get the emails. Yeah. I did say that that the chief blamed Garrick for killing four of his people. He only killed one of his people and he killed two soldiers. Oh, that's true. And yeah. Then... yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Good. 
mea culpa. I was under the influence of something. <laughs> right. It wasn't. It wasn't the real Norman. Yeah. It was. It wasn't it was me. Some other said, Norman who who exists only in that moment. I said, "Give me the brandy." <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. But you know the the interesting thing to me about stories like this, whether they're real or fictional, you know, where someone is not in their right mind, is that. It truly is easy to change someone's behavior based on conditioning, based on environment, based on sometimes mm-hmm. substance. You know, the, there are all kinds of factors that can alter behavior. And since that is relatively easy to do, to me, it's a, a much more interesting question to ask, which is the question that the chief is asking at the end about where we draw the line um, when where do we decide that that blame actually is to lie when someone is out of control or behaving in a destructive way? Let me put it to you this way, and this is probably going to just compound the issue Wonderful. further. <laughs> because this is what we do yes. here at Mission Log. We compound, we compound the issues further. Okay, so let's take this one paradigm, put it to the side, create another paradigm that's similar and has similar consequences. Say, for instance, somebody... Uh, goes into deep cover Mm -hmm. and is conditioned through mind-altering drugs to do terrible things under deep cover, but under the auspices of a government that says that if you do this, that means that when we bring you out of your deep cover, you'll never remember it. And those people that you assassinated or these, uh, these governments that you helped topple, they'll still be there. You know, they, they'll still have suffered the consequences of your actions, but you are blameless because you are underneath the influence of. But the people that put you there believe that they had the higher moral purpose of doing so. So is that the same? Hmm. Well, you know, and it's interesting that you put it like that because we almost had a situation like that if you go back to a simple investigation. Here's somebody whose mind was completely overwritten with another program in order to do a specific job that could have gone many ways. You know, it was designed as essentially like a fact-finding mission, but who knows? She could have done something horrible for him she could have committed crimes for him she who knows so and and i'm sorry i kind of kind of went off the uh point there a little bit but yeah we we have to decide how much of that is i guess acceptable collateral damage if you're deciding that you're going to mess with somebody that much uh in this case these cardassians decided well hey what's better than a cardassian soldier it's a cardassian soldier who wants to kill even more then there is a certain responsibility that comes along with that that clearly those cardassian scientists didn't really take into account or maybe they didn't care maybe like because you know, there's there's something that I love uh, referring to every time I see the uh, these kind of like these um, these drug related soldier like super soldier uh, stories, and that goes all the way back to Encounter at Farpoint. Mm-hmm. Q was kind of like admonishing kind of like the the crimes of humanity, and he said that sometime in the future you're going to control all, all of your armies using drugs, and he even like uses a little cocaine yeah. sniffer, you know, with uh, that wacky armor that they designed right, for it, right? Now, it, now, the scene didn't really sell me, but the message did sell me because it's exactly like how many different ways are we going to show like, you know, killing machines like the Jem'Hadar and now like these Cardassians being created and being developed and being controlled by drugs. Yeah. 
right? Because that's something that's being repeated now as a as an idea in this series. So what are exactly these guys trying to tell us? Yeah. You know, are they trying to tell us that this is a way that's going to something that's going to happen? Because, you know, it's like even going to the superhero genre, Captain America technically like Tony Stark told him in, I think, one of the Avengers movies, like the only thing that ever happened to you that special came out of a bottle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're not special. It's the drug that makes you special. There's nothing about you that's actually super. Let's. Let's flip that on its head because I I think in a real world way, I think where this turns into a a very gray kind of moral existential area is that, okay, if if we go with the premise that somebody's brain chemistry can be altered to the point of them acting out in this way, some way you, you want to make somebody more aggressive you want to make them kill you want to make them docile you want to do whatever then we're acknowledging the fact that the brain is a malleable chemical construct right there, there's not just like another you out there you know, the, the mind of you out there floating around somewhere that pulls the strings that no that that is what the brain does right so right. if somebody through very natural processes acts out in a terrible criminal way. Well, we take them, we throw them in jail, and in some places we execute those people uh, because we're we're you know assuming that they are responsible for that thing that they did. However, when we you know if you sort of step back dispassionately from that, you can just go like or. It's just a misfire in brain chemistry that makes somebody do that. And that is a thing that can be uh, potentially, you know, we certainly don't have all the answers where we are in this early 21st century recording of this conversation. But, you know, potentially as medical science develops, we have the ability to say like, oh, well, a little more of this and a little less of that. And that person would have not behaved in a sociopathic criminal way. Uh, or this person would have behaved in, in this other way. So, you know, I come back to this question of, like, looking at characters like, well, specifically Garrick like this. And it raises this question, well, is this bloodthirst that he has just something that's there and is latent anyway, no matter what. If it wasn't this sort of custom chemical that was put into him to make him act out on it, could it have just as easily been something else? Could it have just been the right combination of other environmental factors that would have made him act out in this way? So then do we have to look at Garrick constantly, as maybe we're asking about the chief, do we just have to look at him constantly as somebody who, with the flip of the wrong switch, will kill everybody around him with impunity? And this... Okay, so oh. <laughs> that's a lot. Um, I know. <laughs> okay. No, but no, it's it's a great question. It's a great question, and I think that this is where my uh, my disappointment with this episode comes into play, because I think that that's what they're skirting around when it comes to the chief. And I'm going to answer your Garrick question first, and I think that it does exist in Garrick. That darkness does exist in him. This is why he was so easily trained by the Obsidian Order, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that darkness gives him the ability to supersede his uh, his moral compass. And they were able to use that. I mean, I, I know that this is probably stepping into, you know, fantasy fandom mm. and stuff, but there are movies like, you know, the Born 
everything, (laughs) you know, all the Bourne movies. But they find these, uh, they they find these uh, particular uh, assets or assassins to be through all of these psychological profiles through various means, whether it is something that they took, like a psych test they took in college or something that they took at the CIA when they're doing their field testing. They'll find these specifically um, uh, programmable individuals that respond well to to key stimuli that allows to push them in certain directions. Mm. That's that's. I don't think that's outside the realm of of people's understandings when it comes to those kind of like spy type stories. You know, like your uh, like I said, your Borns of the World, or um, I just saw a movie on Netflix called Ava. It was very much the same thing. You know, they controlled her with drugs because she had a substance abuse problem. Yada yada yada. Sorry for the spoilers, <laughs> but. <laughs> uh, but it's it's very tropish, yeah. right? It's very yeah. tropish where you're like, okay, it's like the Jem Hadar. The Jem Hadar are the perfect example of of this very question. They were programmed to kill. Yeah. Right? It's always gonna be there no matter if you remove the the uh the need uh for the Ketracel White to control them. That's just a byproduct of control. Yeah. Right? But their the underlying need to be able to do what they've been programmed to do is there regardless of that chemical control response. So for Garrick, I think he had a um a proclivity towards that kind of darkness. They just were able to harness Ever and Aubrey was able to harness it in a certain way. Yeah, and and, and, and to me what what this does uh, it it still raises this huge question about responsibility. Because I just taking this away from Cardassians and Jem'Hadar and everybody else, humans here on Earth who wrote this show, wrote ideas like this, who explored this kind of psychology, humans, as far as I understand, are capable of a range of behaviors. And we we rightfully so apply a different sort of value judgment on those behaviors calling them either you know morally good behaviors or immoral behaviors and we decide kind of on the scale where those are but humans by and large are capable of a vast range of those and there are so many and some major and some minor factors that can simply sway those behaviors one way or the other along that scale until you end up with somebody who is sociopathic. <laughs> and I think that um, just to get back to what we're talking mm-hmm. about, uh, the, the chief's kind of story about being the hero of Setlick 3 and how we kept, like, why is it that every single time somebody brings up a conversation of somebody's past in a runabout, it always ends up going badly for them? <laughs> that's, that's true. That seems right? reserved for that, almost specifically. Exactly. Yeah. So they're trying to, uh, Garrick's trying to pry about his history and the, uh, the Federation Cardassian War. And the chief tries to just play that off all the time. He doesn't want to get into it because I think in many ways he did what Garrick did and these soldiers did in this episode. He killed a lot of Cardassians. That is a yeah. given. That is a yeah. fact, right? And he doesn't want to talk about it. I understand that. But it's because maybe there was something that was so similar to what happened here because he could have been under the influence of rage of prejudice influences doesn't they don't necessarily have to be chemical right to alter you yeah yeah right they can be a thought they can be a belief they can be momentum they can be uh peer pressure anything that changes your natural ability to govern to self-govern your motivations is an influence that works against you so it very well could have been revenge you know and that just tipped the scales on him and turned and 
activated whatever bloodthirstiness was in the chief that's inherent within him that was pushed over the edge by this outside yeah. influence. Didn't necessarily have to be a chemical, yeah. but it did something that changed him because of something that got pushed forward sure. from his sure. ego. Yeah, but we decide, you know, contextually what what is the the relative sort of moral value of that behavior. You know, the chief is a good guy. He's on our side. He's a good guy now. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And depending on where, what side of the equation that that Garrick falls in at the time, he's a good guy to us when he's mm-hmm. when we are in need of his mm-hmm. services. All right. That's that's the kind of like the dilemma with people that are in the service just like this is you're only as good as you are useful. Yeah, very true. Could they have gotten around those Cardassian defenses without Garrick? Probably. Mm-hmm. But it was a lot easier if he was there. And now where did it get them? Got them into, you know, a situation that they didn't plan on. So I get that. But this is really all about understanding that there is, I think, something that is always behind the eyes of somebody. It's just that. Do you blame them for when they're pushed too far by something? That, yeah, that, that's, well, <laughs> that's the hardest question to answer out of all of this. Yeah. I'm going to say what we're all thinking. O'Brien's probably really glad this wasn't bring your kids to work day. So, John, it was a good thing that we were staring at our feet this entire time where we were talking through this episode, because if we didn't, we probably would have tripped one of those booby traps that you were talking about, because there were many of them in this episode. Which and is why they called it booby trap. Well, exactly. That's what I thought. Right. That's yeah. what I thought. Then yeah. I read our notes again, because we prepare, and I yeah. saw that it was called Empachnor, and then, okay, so <laughs> I guess staring at our feet really didn't work. But we did actually have some really nice discussion points of about the morals, meanings, and messages, or the potentials of thereof. So how did this episode eventually land for you, and what did you come away with it? This goes up with a few other episodes that I think I just have to say. It's solid but inconsequential. Like, if you take it totally out of context of where we are in DS9, and that DS9 is, you know rightfully praised for its ongoing storytelling when it decides to do ongoing storytelling. If you just kind of remove that from this, what do you have? Well, you have elements that I like. I like O'Brien. I like Garrick. I like Nog. But the problem is, I, I because I do know the context here, again, it feels inconsequential, and I never felt any stakes for any of the new characters because... It is at this point, before this point, just a trope about the unnamed crew members who will definitely die before the end of the episode. So I wish that this was an episode that had taken more risks. And maybe I wish we had seen some more struggling on Garrick's part with really who he is and what's going on with him psychologically. And that is not a slight on Andy at all. It's just a limitation of the script that we go from snarky but helpful Garrick straight to homicidal Garrick. And I I felt like if we really wanted to be invested in Garrick in this, because we like Garrick, then we needed we needed to sort of feel what you and I were just talking about in the last segment. Like, wait, who is he really? And where does that line get drawn between 
outside influence versus his real psychology and does does he struggle with that you know that was all much more interesting fodder that we just didn't get to in this and um it, it, it's unfortunate because i i like an episode that will kind of step out of the the normal style constraints of Star Trek and do something as you were referring to earlier, like The Thing or these other kind of isolation movies where you're ratcheting up the terror. I like it when Star Trek will step out and do something like that. But this didn't feel like the episode to do it because it felt like they didn't really have a point in doing it. So the best I can say about it is I like the people. I like that there are a few kind of uncomfortable, scary moments, but in the end, that's all I'll take away from this. What about you? Well, I think that this uh, this episode for me, uh, it, it just becomes kind of forgettable mm-hmm. because it's just very middle of the road. Like there's nothing in this episode that I haven't seen in a variety of different science fiction shows. And I think that they laid down a lot of really interesting ideas, but they never really went to that emotional depth that, say, the episode where the chief is, a, is going to kill himself because he's suffering mm. so, you know, you know, he's suffering so much from his PTSD that he puts a phaser, you know, right. to his chin. Right. That's the kind of emotional depth that I was hoping this was going to get to, say, with Garrick at the end. Mm-hmm. Not suicidal, but really struggling with the, the remembering the consequences of his actions and where the chief is and saying, like, I've been there before. But I think that the biggest, biggest, biggest missed opportunity and something that they brought over, uh, up over and over and over again is why is Garrick so obsessed with the fact that that O'Brien did this, whatever he did? as the hero of Sedlik Three, That is right. something that right. is deeply troubling to Garrick because he brings it up in a variety of different ways to try and bait the chief right. to discuss it. And that's the scene that I wanted to see happen. I wanted to see the chief just kind of say, okay, this is what I did. You want to know what I did? This is what I did. I'm not proud of it, mm-hmm. but this is who I am. And you know what? I never wanted to pick up a phaser since. That's why I became an engineer, because instead yeah. of destroying lives, I want to rebuild lives. I want to create instead of, instead of destroy. Yeah. Right? And I think that Colm is that actor. He can do that. We saw him do that, right? We saw him get that down. We saw him go to the very depths of, of the chief's um, mm-hmm. soul in, you know, when he was about to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was this uh, another huge opportunity that was missed between rebuild, uh, building more of that connection between the chief and Nog. And, you know, he said that I was a soldier, soldiers kill, and that's true. But you could have built that so much more that you really understood the chief's hatred for the Cardis. Because, you know, he did say that. And that's a very, yeah. uh, you know, it's a very bigoted thing to say for a Federation officer. And then maybe that's why he's so... You know, uh, that, that Keiko is his entire world because he was at one point in time so lost and so broken that maybe she was the one that, that rebuilt him and found him a way to find, uh, you know, focused his attention on his natural instincts of being an engineer, right? We yeah. needed to see that broken moment with the chief saying that, okay, you got me. You did your research. You did your homework. You have all the files on me from being in the Obsidian Order. And yeah. I did the Custer-like type of massacre 
of the Indians at the Battle of So-and-So mm-hmm. during the Federation-Cardassian War. That was me. You got me. And I can't hide anymore. Now what do we do? Yeah. There's so much missed opportunity there to explore the psychology of what gets them into this mindset or out of that mindset, going from people that we can kind of understand and we're familiar with and we like versus the people who kill or have chosen to kill or forced to kill. So, yeah, it it just it's an episode that comes at an odd time. In the end, I'm not sure it really reveals much about anybody that hasn't been revealed before and couldn't have been done better. And then when I come to look, I I apologize up front, because when I come to morals, meanings, messages, I, I felt like they didn't really explore the the depths that could have been explored so i'm just going to go with the uh, lessons from a horror movie which is that splitting up is always a bad idea Mm. that immediately precedes somebody getting killed and if you're in a horror movie always a bad idea to make a joke about anything because that too precedes you getting killed in a horror movie so uh, the, those things happened here. People split up, and then somebody makes a joke, like a little offhand comment. Boom, they're the next ones to go. So they should have learned that by watching some good old 20th century horror movies in their off time. That would have never happened to them. Can you possibly find anything with any uh, shred of seriousness that I did not? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right on both parts, and I will <laughs> okay. be absolutely serious about that. <laughs> and Scream taught us these things. So yes, yes. Watch your Scream. Watch your Watch your Scream at least part one. Right. You, you know, um, when uh, I, I texted you, and, and and everyone who listens to our our show knows that I I usually text John when I say, "Hey, am I going to get a softball episode?" Well, I think I did. Yeah, yeah. I finally yeah. think I got my softball episode, and I don't want to disparage the people who actually do like this episode because there are things that can be mined that are good. Mm-hmm. And when you when I really wanted to boil down, like, what did I take away from this? What did I see? We did touch on some of these before, and I just kind of want to re- reiterate them again. Uh, the big moral or meaning or message that I took away from this is. Can you forgive someone for the pain or violence that they have caused someone else because what they did was caused by being under the influence, quote, under the influence? When a drunk driver runs into a school bus or somebody's texting and they don't see uh, somebody's kitten crossing the road, these things are all, they're all tragedies of varying degrees, no more than um, or no less than, say, somebody who has suffered some type of mental break and does a terrible thing. These are all terrible things. Some of them can be prevented. Some of them can't. But the point of all of that is how do you get past that as a person who is on the other side of it and forgive that person for doing it? How do you find that within yourself to be able to do that? And I think that's where we leave the chief in this episode is how does it get past Garrick doing what he did? Because up until a point... Everyone is like, oh, Garrick is just kind of goofy. He's aloof. He's a tailor, but he's a spy, and he's friends with Julian, and he does all these interesting things, and he was part of our, you know, our little inner circle, outer circle. He mm-hmm. is there. He's kind of like in our orbit, and now he has exposed himself as being an expert, stone-cold killing machine without remorse, without really even provocation. It's just what he does, and he's very good at it, and he's very well-trained. So when the party's over, when the bar lights go up, who do you see? And can you live with that, knowing that he's capable of doing that five feet away from you? 
Well, see, I, I think in a sort of the real world example, you know, this goes back to the the sort of convenient lie that we tell ourselves about people whose behavior we want to excuse. You know, if we had that built into us, we'd say, oh, but, it, you know, I, I can't allow myself to believe that somebody would behave in this particularly uh, offensive or terrible way. So we conveniently tell ourselves is that, well, that wasn't really them. That mm -hmm. wasn't really that person, even though the, the tragedy of it is that uh, I, I guess it probably was. Well, yeah, you're touching on a point that I also want to, want to reinforce here. It's that it's possible to see this episode as a cautionary tale about substance abuse. It's also about the thinnest veil of forgiveness that's always kind of like blanketed across whatever excuse someone makes to atone for what they did when they were, quote unquote, under the influence. It wasn't me. It was the booze. It was the pills. It was the rage. It yeah. was the jealousy. You know, it was all of the above and everything in between. Right. So how, how, do we, how do we come to terms with that? How does the chief come to terms with what Garrick did? Because Garrick does admit that it was him under the influence that brought out the violence within him. But is this also a Jekyll and Hyde type of scenario where it's hard to believe that the truest nature of people, uh, when it's brought to the surface, is that dark? Is that ugly? And we've, we've heard stories of people who we thought were one way, like you said, and when they have mm -hmm. one too many drinks or hits a substance too hard, they become a completely different person. How do we reconcile ourselves knowing that person? How do we approach them next time? Do we approach them next time? Is there a next time? Or do we find it in our hearts to forgive? Because we know that at one point in time, it could be us. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, in the cards. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. I'm glad we're all cool with Garrick after this, and everything is cool, and everybody's cool. No harm, no foul, it's cool. Transmission Podcast. Roddenberry. Com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.